Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the first episode of 2021. Happy New Year, everybody. We're going to celebrate with some articles. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, ZME Science has quite the attention-grabbing headline, Musical Hips. Doctors literally hear music while checking a patient's pulse. <laughs> and the subhead is what? pretty great. Okay. This was quite possibly the weirdest ham radio flex in medical history. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unlike those other ham radio flexes that aren't that. It's like, oh, well. Right, right. Yeah. Of all the weird ham radio flexes in medical history, this might be the weirdest <laughs> if we have to you know, rank them. But it was just another day at work when doctors admitted a 65-year-old man after a fall resulted in a dislocated right hip. The doctors used a handheld Doppler ultrasound device to assess the man's pulse in his feet, which is apparently a standard procedure. But much to everyone's surprise, the device's speakers played music accompanying the man's regular pulse. What sorcery was this? (laughs) It turns out the man with the most melodic pulse in the world had previously undergone surgery to replace both hips with prosthetics which the authors of a new report published in the New England Journal of Medicine believe picked up radio waves, although, quote, other equipment in the room, such as the hospital bed, could have received the signal. Hmm. There's a video accompanying the report, and you can hear the song Gracias por tu amor by mm-hmm. Banda El Recodo del Cruz Lizaranga. I apologize for absolutely butchering that. But you can actually hear that music being played while they're fiddling with their instruments. So there was no harm that came out of it. Totally benign. Eight months after the bizarre radio interference, the patient's doing well. The article is happy to note he has not experienced any other falls and can now boast that his heart literally beats to the drum of life. (laughs) So, I mean, was the heartbeat going to the rhythm of the song? Like, is it one of those things where your heartbeat syncs up to what you can hear? (laughs) No, no, it's not something that's like continuously driving him crazy while he's doing (laughs) daily activities. I feel like there might be copyright concerns. Like, if they've gone and put this song (laughs) on their video, I mean, video get taken down off YouTube for having the wrong song in the background. So it's true. Um, it's true. Go, they get go taken see it now while you can. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from scientificamerican.com and it's titled Young Ravens Rival Adult Chimps in a Big Test of General Intelligence. Whoa. Oh. So yeah. So scientists and casual observers alike have known for years that ravens and their corvid relatives are really smart, but most studies use just a single experiment that provide a limited view of their overall intelligence. So Simone Pika, a cognitive scientist at Osnabrück University in Germany, says, quite often in single tasks, you're just testing whether the bird can understand that you're hiding something. And this is important because it adds to a growing body of evidence indicating that really powerful cognitive skills aren't just solely the domain of primates, Mm -hmm. but occur in species across the animal kingdom. Mm -hmm. For sure. So in this new work, Pika and her colleagues turned to a large group of tests that study co-author Esther Herman of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, originally developed in 2007 to investigate cognitive performance in great apes and human children. 
These physical tests measured the bird's abilities to track objects in space and to understand numbers. Hmm. For example, researchers placed a reward under a certain cup and then moved that cup around with several others to see if the ravens could track which one contained the reward. Mm -hmm. And under the social test umbrella, the researchers measured how well the birds could follow cues given by an experimenter. So the human would signal which cup contained a reward by looking or pointing at it, or showed the ravens how to access the reward, and then observed whether they could actually apply what they had observed. They repeated the same 33 tasks for each raven at 4, 8, 12, and 16 months of age, and they were surprised to find that just by four months old, the birds had mastered most of these tasks to the point where, almost across the board, the young ravens' results compared similarly to those of adult chimpanzees and orangutans who had taken the same test. Hmm. Based on earlier studies comparing human performance against that of other apes, Herman surmises that children who are about two and a half years old would outperform ravens in social cognition tasks, but would be about equal to birds for most of the physical cognition tests. Hey, all right. Good to know. Humans are dumb. Yeah. I'm ready for this like Olympic showdown, right? <laughs> are you are you stronger than a two-year-old human crow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's actually a video on this article too of the researcher, you know, putting the reward under a cup and then swapping them around and then pushing it through a little cage to the raven who immediately taps the right cup. It's pretty oh, dang. wild to just be like, yeah, like, yeah, nice. I know what you did there. Yeah. I have object permanence. Thank you very much. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so in some ways, the findings about raven intelligence are expected, but they're important in terms of validating the bird's cognitive performance. So, you know, we've kind of had this bias towards the great apes because that's who we descended from. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's not just us. We're not just the only smarties in the room, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> there are some important caveats, one of which is that she, uh, Pika and her colleagues only worked with eight birds, and the cognitive challenges the ravens were presented with in a captive environment differ from those that they'd face in the wild. <laughs> Not a lot of prey animals are hiding themselves under cups and then moving around <laughs> and hoping to escape. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, yeah. like it, the analogs in nature, like leaf litter or, you know, in a log or something like mm -hmm. that, there have mm -hmm. to be some kind of analogs there. Yeah, definitely. So one thing that surprised the researchers is that the ravens didn't do as well as expected on spatial tasks, which was surprising because birds spend their life navigating large right? areas by wing. So they yeah. thought they'd do a little better on that. But the ravens could have also been thrown off because they were interacting with humans rather than members of their own species. Mm. And if you imagine having raven demonstrators for human toddlers or great apes, how well would they perform? Mm -hmm. Well, and we have all of these sort of historical records of ravens talking, right? Like mm -hmm. they can talk mm -hmm. like parrots can. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I have this weird fantasy of like the dinosaurs actually achieved full on intelligence and sentience. And then they had civilizations and they invented smartphones and then they nuked themselves to death. And uh. like their whole society rose and went down within, you know, 10,000 years, you know, kind of like ours. And yeah. they and these are like just the leftovers and that they will rise again once we're done with ourselves. Like, yeah. They're just biding their time just because they can speak doesn't mean they mm -hmm. always want to. It's almost kind of like cat like behavior. And yeah, by the way, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure what you just described is very close to a Doctor Who episode I've seen. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, you well, may you need go. to look that up. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, it is new vocabulary time here. Ooh. Uh, do you guys know what a thermopylium is? Uh, Does it no. have to do with temperature and it, some kind of location? Is it a city for yeah. ther thermometers? <laughs> a city for thermometers. <laughs> or like some kind of like pavilion, a heat pavilion? <laughs> um, kind of close indirectly. It is Greek. <laughs> 
for snack bar, essentially. Ah, of course. <laughs> yes, this is relevant because an exceptionally well-preserved snack bar has been unearthed in Pompeii. <gasps> oh. Yeah, the Guardian reports uh, it comes from the Greek thermos for hot and polio for cell. And they were very popular in the Roman world. Obviously, we've talked about the archaeological work at Pompeii before, but as a quick reminder for anyone who's been living under a volcanic rock, the city <laughs> was destroyed in AD 79 when the nearby Mount Vesuvius erupted, killing somewhere between 2,000 and 15,000 people. Mm-hmm. Work is ongoing. We expect a lot more cool discoveries in the coming years, but this is the first time a building or a business has been uncovered in such pristine condition. And it really has to do with, like, sort of the concentric rings of damage. Like, it was far enough away that it wasn't completely obliterated, but it was still close enough to have been just covered in ash, which is sort of that function that kept it so perfectly preserved. Hmm. So the name of the fast food stall was Reggio 5. It stood at the corner of Silver Wedding Street and the Alley of Balconies. I'm not entirely sure whether those are the names that the Greeks had for them that have been translated or if we've somehow just decided we're going to name all the streets so that we can understand the archaeological dig. But the street-facing side is like an L-shaped counter. It's got a series of large holes where you could hold cooking pots and the fires could be underneath heating them and you could sort of switch the pots out as needed. The pots themselves were set just inside the stall as if someone had closed up shop very quickly. And several of them even contain the remains of food. Researchers found duckbone fragments as well as traces of pork, goat meat, fish, and snails. And many of these ingredients were actually mixed together in various combinations in what the article calls a Roman-era paella, which <laughs> feels a little anachronistic because paella came later, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> a jar was also found containing crushed fava beans, which apparently the Greeks would use to flavor their wine. Ooh. And I'm not... I don't know what that would taste like. Me neither. I, like, I mean, it sort of makes it thicker, I guess, like a severe. I don't know. Yeah. Like a wine gravy? <laughs> yeah, like wine gravy. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even the paint on the stall is in amazingly good condition, which is how they know what it's named. There's a main fresco in the middle with a nymph riding a seahorse in front of some gladiators in combat. Yeah. And then there are a bunch of smaller paintings of animals that are basically thought to be a menu. Right. Not everybody was literate. So you could sort of say, like, I want the duck or whatever. And they also found the remains of two people. One was a man in his 50s who was found in the back of the shop near a child's bed. So the researchers have surmised, you know, basically there was a family running this shop and living in the back rooms and that he was probably the proprietor who stayed behind while the rest of the family fled. The other was at the front of the shop. And their best guess is that he was actually a thief taking advantage of the fact that everyone was suddenly gone because frozen in his hand is the lid of a pot of food he had just opened. Oh, he, I wow. guess, you know, when a volcano's going off, sometimes you just got to get a snack on your way out. I don't know. Like, it seems pretty <laughs> short-sighted. But. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things about all of this is, like, we're digging up our own very well-preserved skeletons. Mm-hmm. So, like, if we ever do bite the dust and another creature evolves intelligence millions of years from now, there's not going to be any preserved human civilization for them to find because we'll have already dug ourselves up, right? <laughs> like, they, I don't know. So, like, the most modern version of us to suffer some kind of catastrophe is going to be an ancient for a future culture. Yeah, absolutely. And only if, like, the volcano gets all of us really quickly because otherwise we're going to be like, oh, let's dig that up and see who we got under there. <laughs> We've got the premise for another Doctor Who episode. We should pitch it to them. Absolutely. We're... we're... <laughs> We're workshopping here today. We're going to get it, I think. (laughs) Next link. 
Next link. Well, Live Science would like you all to know that seals are making Star Wars noises at each other underwater, and we have no idea why. <laughs> well, they're excited for the movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's a the... very complex marketing campaign. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the franchise saturation is hitting new levels as they're hitting the ocean blue, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what scientists are hearing for the first time is that seals can chirp whistle and trill like droids. The article notes that above water, they sound like bellowing Wookiees, but below the ice, seals sound like chirping, chattering robots. So, but they only make these noises underwater. Like, we know what that noises they make above ground. That's exactly right. Interesting. So, Paul Sidko, a visiting professor at the University of Oregon and lead author of a new study describing the bizarre seal sounds, said in a statement that the Weddell seals' calls create an almost unbelievable otherworldly soundscape under the ice. It really sounds like you're in the middle of a space battle in Star Wars, laser <laughs> beams and all. Here's the catch. You would have to be an alien or a droid to hear them. Oh. All of those sci-fi sounds are totally inaudible to human ears. They had to use special oh, wow. microphones. They were able to detect these noises after two years of listening to Waddell Seals with a special hydrophone, which is a fancy word for an underwater microphone, <laughs> mm -hmm. installed in Antarctica's McMurdo Sound in 2017. Now, before the researchers started recording, they knew about 34 seal calls that are audible to human ears. But now the team's research adds nine new types of ultrasonic calls to the seal's repertoire. These include trills, whistles, and alien-sounding chirps, sometimes even composed of multiple harmonized tones. So this wow. is where we get a little bit auditory geek here. Humans hear in the sonic range of 20 to 20,000 hertz. But most of the newfound seal sounds exceeded 21,000 hertz, with mm. some even rising to 30,000. So one high-pitched whistle reached a shrieking 49.8 kilohertz. Wow. Whoa. Yep. And when seals harmonized multiple tones, the resulting noise could exceed 200 kilohertz. And that's well beyond the hearing range of cats, dogs, and even some bats. And so what are these high-frequency communications about? We don't know yet. Uh, we had never even detected <laughs> ultrasonic vocalizations in seals, nor in any other fin-footed mammals like sea lions or walruses. But the researchers are speculating that they might just be bonus conversational elements to, quote, stand out over all the lower frequency noises, like changing to a different <laughs> channel for communicating. They're showing and, off is what they're saying. Right, they're right. Like, and, we can make these sounds and you can't. Uh -huh. It could be singing, right? Maybe they've discovered their own version of seal new rock. Mm -hmm. who, who knows? It could be a fad, could be an evolutionary stepping stone. <laughs> the article notes that it's theoretically possible that the noises are involved in echolocation, which is the biological sonar that animals like dolphins and bats use to find their way around dark places. But so far, there is no evidence that seals use echolocation. They can dive more than 1,900 feet below water and hunt wow. in the darkness of Antarctic winter. So we'll keep listening in and maybe recruiting them because I know we've got another season of The Mandalorian coming out. Yeah, I think we need to yeah. translate that real quick because they might be having whole like overthrow <laughs> the population conversations that we don't know about. They're planning for a post-human society and they've yeah. you know, purposefully chosen sounds out <laughs> of our range that we're just like, what is it? Maybe it's a conversation blip who knows put them in that's a movie right. we're like they're singing and they're like yeah that's what we're doing buddy we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna outlive you ha ha yeah. <laughs> next link next, next link, link. 
So speaking of uh, wine mixed with duck stuff or whatever, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, this is not about that specifically, but this article comes to us from theguardian.com and it is titled, A Good Vintage, Science Suggests Appreciation of Wine Grows with Age. Ooh. Yeah, just as a bottle of wine improves with age, so may our ability to pick out the subtleties of its scent. And this is caused by changes in the composition of our saliva, and how much of it we produce appears to intensify our perception of smoky and peppery aromas in red wine. So this finding could lead to development of wines that are more tailored to specific groups of consumers. Uh, <laughs> it's old old lady wine. They're going to make a special. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if they come out with a crazy cat lady vintage, you know I'm going to have to get it just for the label alone. I mean, I would be amazed if that does not already exist, honestly. <laughs> right, right. But maybe they'll target it even more. Yep. Uh, so Maria Angeles del Pozo Bayon of the Spanish Research Council's Institute of Food Science and Research in Madrid Madrid says that we could diversify winemaking production to make more enjoyable wines based on consumers' physiological factors like the shape of our mouths or the composition of our saliva, which transports and dissolves the aromatic compounds in wine as well as transforming some of them through the actions of the enzymes it contains. Hmm. Previous studies had suggested that our saliva becomes less plentiful and more concentrated as we age, so to better understand how such changes might influence people's wine perception, Bayonne and her colleagues recruited 11 people between the ages of 18 and 35 and 11 over 55 and trained them to recognize and rate the intensity of aromas in wine. They also took samples of their saliva and assessed how much of it they could produce as well as its pH protein content, and the activity of various enzymes, wow. which, you know, is like half fun, half kind of invasive, yeah. but, you know. <laughs> Spit in this cup. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then have some wine. So they were also then tested on their ability to perceive smoky and peppery aromas in red wine. Older individuals were more sensitive to these aromas and rated them more intensely and for a longer time compared with younger drinkers. And these findings fit in with the experience of a professional wine taster. It's not only the age that can affect the perception of particular aromas, but also the content of the taster's last meal, mm. whether or not they have an empty stomach or if they ate carbs, proteins, acidic or salty food. As for why older people's saliva might improve their ability to detect these smoky and peppery flavors, Bayonne explained that the amount of saliva they produce could affect the dilution of aromatic compounds, with lower volumes resulting in a greater number of aroma molecules being released into the airflow and coming into contact with the smell receptors in our noses as we exhale. So basically, less of it is getting subsumed into the saliva, mm -hmm. so to speak. So, um, I mean, what this basically is saying that all of those fancy wine pairing rules are actually true because it does affect the flavor <laughs> of the wine depending on what you're yeah. eating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's going to taste like wine gravy if you That's mix right. it with a bean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just as cellaring wine for too long can cause it to deteriorate, there may also be a sweet spot for wine appreciation. Uh, <laughs> other research suggests that people's sense of smell becomes blunted as they progress into their 90s. Mm -hmm. So if you've been saving a fine vintage and you yourself are approaching a ripe age, it may pay to consume it sooner rather than later. That's right. Best to get your booze on now while you're still young. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's some good pandemic advice, is... isn't it? Just drink it. Yeah. Just drink it now. Drink it now. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Treat yourself. Especially Especially if you're over 55. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, apparently I'm going on a little bit of a theme today because this one is also about Rome. Rome's Colosseum is getting a retractable floor. 
What? This, yeah. Whoa. So this like is a from pool Art cover. Net. Sorry. Kind of. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, the Italian government, generally speaking, has decided that they want to bring back the Colosseum not just as a tourist destination, but as a modern venue for concerts and theatrical productions. Oy. So currently, the biggest roadblock to that is that the amphitheater has no floor. The article was fascinating because I have two images in my mind of the Colosseum, right? So one is, of course, the classic picture of the outside as it looks today with these crumbling columns and everything. Mm-hmm. And then the second is the sort of reimagined version of the inside as shown in movies like Gladiator, right? You've got this mm-hmm. sandy floor. Mm-hmm. But the article has a picture of the inside as it looks today, which I had never seen. And it's very different from the place where Russell Crowe was standing all bloody in. The stands (laughs) are sort of what you would expect, right? These concentric circles of stepped bleachers. But Mm -hmm. then in the center, instead of this big field of sand where the lions can eat people, it keeps going down. And the bottom is sort of like a labyrinth with all these walls and hallways and things. And basically what you're looking at are the various rooms and chambers that were underneath Mm -hmm. the original flooring, which was apparently made of something less sturdy than stone and disintegrated over the centuries. The article doesn't say what the original floor was made of, And I'm actually really curious because one of the little side facts that they mentioned was that in ancient times, the Romans would sometimes flood the central arena with water to stage naval battles with real floating ships. What? And structurally, I know. I was like, this is a really important detail. Why have I never heard this before? Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, like structurally, it seems like a huge amount of weight to be placing over the living quarters of your entire gladiator team. Yeah. And like somehow it was watertight and they also had to have had an irrigation system to fill it and a drainage system to get it back to normal. I'm like, there's a whole article I want to read right there. (laughs) How they pulled off these feats of engineering. But that is not this article, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, This article is about how the Coliseum has been without a floor for about a thousand years. And if they want to have concerts there, they're going to have to put one back in. But the rooms underneath are a part of the historical appeal, too, and they want them to remain accessible. So the current director of the Coliseum, Alfonsina Russo, is requesting bids for a retractable flooring system that can be rolled out for performances, but then brought back in when it's time to show the tourists and the historians what's underneath. Hmm. They also say they anticipate a market for tourists who want to step down onto the new floor and see the Coliseum from the perspective of the gladiators who fought there. So, you know, I can see it's kind of cool. It's definitely not going to be historically accurate. Right. But it might be kind of neat to have both versions. If you're going to be updating the place anyway and trying to use it for modern, mm-hmm. as a modern concert venue, which feels destructive. I'm yeah, not sure. that just mm-hmm. feels like a way that they're trying to monetize something that, to my understanding, is already bringing in a fair amount of cash. I mean, not only to people, you know, coming to Rome, but also to see that specifically. So... I don't know. I'm feeling dubious about this because it feels like it's going to be like a Back to the Future Part 2 reconstruction of the past, but with an obviously modern (laughs) lens. And so there are going to be little things that we get wrong in an effort to try to bring it to life. And I guess that's just how history evolves over time. Yeah. Yeah, I bet they won't even flood it with water. (laughs) No, they probably won't. Well, they could do like a Cirque du Soleil show there, though, if they did. That would be awesome. Oh, yeah. That's true. That's true. I will say, in case any of our listeners happen to run giant construction companies, they are accepting proposals from (laughs) firms worldwide. Proposals must be submitted by February 1st, and work is expected to get underway next year and be completed by 2023. And the Italian government will be subsidizing the project with a grant of 10 million euros or about $12 million. So they're serious about this. They want to, you know, bring it into the modern age. Yeah, maybe I'll go see a show there. I don't know. It might be good. <laughs> like some stand-up in the center of the Coliseum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see Ariana Grande in a historically relevant cultural center. Why not? Absolutely. 
<laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, since we're entering a new year,、uh, but still in the middle of this pandemic, it's time for a little bit of optimism. The Guardian、oh, is, <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of couched in the lens of history, like we've been talking about. But The Guardian、mm. has an epidemiologist who's looking to the past to predict a second post-pandemic. Roaring twenties. So we know the stats. It's been really horrible. We're still in the middle of it. But Yale professor and social epidemiologist Dr. Nicholas Christakis is telling us in a new book called Apollo's Arrow: The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live, which seems a little early to publish. But regardless,、right? um, he sees a path. <laughs> yeah, he got that one out quick. He sure did. I mean, <laughs> I know publication through Kindle is shortening the time span of publication, but it just seems a little <laughs> premature. But anyway, one of the Patterns he's seeing is that what's happening to us may seem to so many people to be really alien and unnatural, but plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us in this generation,、mm-hmm. right? And so his expertise is in how our behaviors influence contagion in society. So here's the comfort that might be taken in his observations of disease over millennia: plagues and pandemics end. They always end. <laughs> they, sure. They, yeah. They even ended before we had vaccines to respond to them. And how we react to these germs through things like social distancing determines the force with which they hit our society. This may come across as a little no duh to some of our listeners, but <laughs>、uh, it's one of the chief thesis arguments in his books. But he notes in this really interesting quote. We are the first generation of humans alive who have ever faced this threat that allows them to respond in real time with efficacious medicines. But knowing that pandemics and plagues end, once they end, there's usually a period in which people seek out extensive social interaction, and which he predicts will be a second Roaring Twenties, just as after we had the 1918 flu pandemic. So during epidemics, he notes you get increases in religiosity, people becoming more <laughs> abstentious, they save money, they get more risk averse, and we're seeing all of that now, just as we have for hundreds of years during epidemics. And economies of ancient civilizations also collapsed in times of disease. Maybe a no duh, but a lot of people think that it's the actions of our government that are causing the economy to slow. He notes economies collapsed even in ancient times when plagues happened, even when there was no government saying close the schools and close、right. the restaurants. Like、right. that still happened, you guys. <laughs> And he notes that this future will not come until society has had time to distribute the vaccine, probably through 2021, and had time to recover from the socio-economic devastation it has wrought, which will probably be through 2023. So manage your expectations according to this one guy's predictions here. But the vision he lays out for 2024 and beyond is one filled with experiences pined for in isolation.、Mm. We're talking about packed stadiums, crowded nightclubs, and this is what made my heart sore: flourishing arts. I cannot wait to get back to the theater <laughs> and not just performing,、mm. but seeing live theater. Oh my gosh!、Mm-hmm. So he predicts、yeah. that in 2024, all of those pandemic trends are going to get reversed. People will, as he put it. Relentlessly seek out social interactions,、right. and that could include sexual licentiousness, liberal spending,、mm. and a reverse of religiosity. We've got a light at the end of the tunnel here, if history is any guide. But the coming year is really going to test the world's endurance in continuing to social distance, hand wash, wear masks. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like basically what he's saying is like we're gonna get the big bump at the end. It's just a question of how fast can we get to the end. That's right. Delayed gratification. It's one of the things that we as humans are historically bad at, but that、right. always <laughs> d- is proven to pay yields and dividends far beyond whatever. 
little things you're snatching or grabbing at today to get. That's right. It's a worldwide marshmallow test all at the same time. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) Next link. Next link. link. Looking also to the future, this article (laughs) comes to us from futurism.com, and it's titled, Elon Musk will run into trouble setting up a Martian government, lawyers say. Oh, goody two-shoes. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So SpaceX CEO Elon Musk is steadfast in realizing his dreams of establishing a permanent colony on Mars, but any new government there will likely face immense legal challenges. And we got a early glimpse of what such a future society could look like buried deep inside the user agreement for SpaceX's Starlink satellite internet service. So um, let me put on my best terms of service voice here. Oh, good. (laughs) Uh, For services provided on Mars or in transit to Mars via Starship or other colonization spacecraft, the parties recognize Mars as a free planet and that no Earth-based government has authority or sovereignty over Martian activities. Mm. Accordingly, disputes will be settled through self-governing principles established in good faith at the time of the Martian settlement. Uh, So Burning Man is basically what we're talking about here. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like uh, legally sanctioned anarchy. I don't know. Interesting, right? Uh, But anyways, so Musk has previously pondered what such a government could look like. During South by Southwest 2018, Musk told audiences that most likely the form of government on Mars would be something of a direct democracy, where people vote directly on issues instead of going through representative government. Lawyers, however, have their doubts about SpaceX's abilities to set up a Martian state. And in fact, several told The Independent in a news story what SpaceX has laid out isn't actually radically different from space treaties that have been signed over the years. Randy Segal of the law firm Hogan Lovells told the newspaper that the whole of space law contemplates that those of us on this planet share the rights and responsibility to make space something we can all share together. For instance, the 2020 Artemis records stipulate that outer space is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means. (laughs) Musk may be taking baby steps towards nation building already, Segal said. He could be trying to lay some groundwork for offering up an independent constitution, just like he did for electric cars and reusable launch vehicles. Does it have any precedent or enforceability? The answer I'd say is clearly no. But if you say something enough, people might come around. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, all of these questions, like everyone's like, oh, it wouldn't be legal. Legality is 100% determined by who's got the bigger army. Yes. Like, if I defeat you, what I say is legal is legal now. Mm -hmm. So then it's just a question of like, okay, does Musk have a loyal enough set of employees who are going to physically fight for the land that they have colonized on? This is so previous century, Jennifer. You know he's going to use AI. (laughs) He doesn't need loyal employees. He's all in on AI. And so if we have like a total governing autonomous AI body, I mean, come on. We all know where this is going. Then they realize that the Ravens are smarter than us, and then they team up, and then we have a new forerunner race. They're in league, man. It's a whole thing. That's right. Admittedly, it is a little hard to fly on Mars with no atmosphere. Like, we're going to have to do a lot of work before the Ravens can really thrive there. (laughs) Very true. Very true. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, unfortunately, this one is kind of a bummer to end on. So I'm going to try to keep it light. (laughs) Uh, It's actually a twofer. So there was an article in the Damage Rich and Curated Links section about two months ago about a hiker who had died and basically they couldn't identify him. Mm -hmm. He had a lot of money on him. I think it was about $4,000. So he didn't, you know, clearly wasn't any kind of foul play was suspected. He had weighed just 83 pounds. And as far as they could tell, he just kind of had wasted away inside his tent. 
So, you know, they did this sort of standard police routines where they're trying to identify him. They don't have great pictures of the body. So they're like, oh, here's what his camping equipment looked like. Here's where we think he may have traveled. And somebody recognized him. And they said, oh, yeah, I hiked with that guy, (gasps) you know, six weeks ago or whatever. And I took a picture of him. What? So here's a modern picture. Yeah. Wow. And so the sheriff's office is like, oh, cool, great. And as the picture started going out, more people started chiming in and saying, oh, yeah, I saw that guy. I hiked with that guy, too. And over the months, they started to piece together this backstory of this guy who they still had not been able to identify. There was no ID on the body, but they had a lot of people who had talked with him. And they recreated this history of his hike from New York all the way down to Key West. What? Yeah. And apparently there's this whole culture of hiking on these trails. So one of the things you do is you often have a trail name, which is not your real name. This guy, hmm. he went by denim at first because people were making fun of him for hiking in jeans. <laughs> but uh, he, he soon got himself some better equipment. And for most of the hike, he went by a name, Mostly Harmless, which is, of course, a reference oh. to Douglas Adams' oh, book. Oh. Ah. Okay. Yeah. And everybody was basically like, yeah, yeah, I talked to that guy. They had various photos. They had a bunch of GoPro footage. But nobody knew enough about him to identify him. You know, someone's like, oh, I remember he really liked ketchup. And this other guy was like, he said he had a sister that was either in Saratoga or Sarasota. And, you know, someone else was like, I'm really sure he was a programmer because he played this video game called Screeps, where apparently, like, you have to use Java code to play the game. Like, it's it's a very intense thing. I don't know. I don't understand it. But all these details, I mean. Right. I mean, the amount of information they had and yet they still couldn't identify him was mind-blowing. Yeah. And the sheriff's department just kind of kept trying to follow these leads and nothing went anywhere. And of course, it went a little viral on the internet. There were some groups that were started up. Some people were like, we really need to find this guy because he's got to have family. Someone needs to know he what happened to him. Some woman wrote letters to the chambers of commerce in various cities. Like they really went all out and they just couldn't figure it out. So this first article from November was in Wired that was largely telling this guy's story and was attempting to sort of get the word spread farther. Right. Maybe somebody will recognize these pictures, this story. Maybe we can help. And they did. So just last week, apparently it spread far enough that some friends of the man saw the pictures and contacted the police department. And so now this article is an update on what has happened to him. His name is Vance Rodriguez. And it's unfortunate in the sense that, you know, somebody who abandons their life and has nobody looking for them, no missing persons report, Mm -hmm. you know, he had some troubles. That doesn't really shock anybody who's been digging into Mm -hmm. trying to figure out who this guy is. He definitely was, you know, kind of a loner. Everybody who knew him said, you know, he was really nice and really sweet right up until he wasn't. And there was like a direct quote from somebody who was like, he was caring and sweet and also kind of a dick. And (laughs) he definitely, you know, he had estranged himself from his family Mm -hmm. and no one from the family has responded. But they've definitely got some friends who have sort of, you know, memorialized a little bit and said, oh, yeah, he was troubled. And now they sort of know who he is, at least. And they can kind of put the story to rest. Some of the people who have known him have said, you know, he wouldn't have wanted this. And other people are like, yeah, well, we did it anyway because it's the Internet and that's what we do. We, we solve mysteries. I won't say that this is going to turn into a true crime podcast because it definitely is not. Um, it was it was very fascinating when the article first came by. I didn't end up talking about it, but I did read into like, oh, man, maybe I know this guy. I didn't. <laughs> but anyway, the new update is in Adventure Dash Journal, and it's worth taking a look at. It sort of brings together this idea of like what causes a person to sort of remove themselves from society Mm -hmm. and yet also find 
a new community in the hiking trail because he clearly touched a lot of people's lives yeah. as he made this hike. He wasn't alone for pretty much any part of it. Yeah. So I'm just know. so in awe of this tradition of like having a trail name. I had no idea that that was a thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and a lot of people in the article were quoted. They were like, no, I don't want my real name. Use my trail name. Uh, his ex-girlfriend went by Tuggy. Like, <laughs> it's it a little weird. Well, I mean, it also kind of, to me, this almost sounds like a pilgrimage. Like when I was studying abroad Mm -hmm. in Japan, you know, there would be pilgrims who would do this kind of prescribed hike dotted with shrines and temples. And maybe this is sort of like the American secular version of it, that you're basically going on this journey of of self-discovery and disconnecting from the world as you know it. And so it Mm -hmm. becomes this kind of ritual. It makes sense to kind of have something like a name, but I'd never heard of it before. Well, and it does seem like he intended, at least in the beginning, to come back. He prepaid his rent for several months. Mm -hmm. He kind of left everything in his apartment as is. You know, he didn't seem like he was done. Mm -hmm. He just seemed like he was taking a break. And then, you know, things kind of went sour for him at some point. Yeah. But yeah, it is tempting to be like, (laughs) yeah, what if I just left my cell phone and everything and just hiked for three months down the entire United States? (gasps) What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot, but still appealing. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, that is all we have time for. We're so glad you've joined us. Something new. We have an email address if you would like to get in touch and let us know anything, your deepest thoughts, whatever. You can reach us at feedback at di.show. There are also, of course, many articles we did not get to. Some of those articles include The Family with No Fingerprints, The Forgotten Life of Einstein's First Wife, and Rotating Sales Help to Revive Wind-Powered Shipping. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.